1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. What today's Apple event really means for that stock? And the entire market, for that matter, we'll discuss and debate with the investment committee that event beginning, as you know by now, less than one hour from now. Joining me today, Brent Talkington, Liz Young, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal and Steve Weiss. Let's go to the wall. We'll check the markets today, show you what we're doing at 12 noon in the east. You can see here we have a pretty good day for stocks. Dow's up 225 S&P Nasdaq positive as well. Nasdaq, obviously a point of concern. Of late, with that big-time losing streak, but Joe Terranova, I'm beginning with you because I have to have a conversation with you.
2: You, let's do it.
1: Said that you were looking to buy the cues. Now you said this like ten days ago. I asked you yesterday, mm-hmm. "What's up with that? Why haven't you bought them yet?" And you mm-hmm. said, "Technically, the time was not right." Mm-hmm. I look at my sheet now. Joe buys the cues.
2: Yep. What's up with that? Yeah. Great lesson. Well, there's a, I think there's a great lesson here for the viewers. I said to you yesterday that it's not about me being right. It's about me making money. It's about me reacting to the market. So let, let, let's go back. Let's understand that, you know, for basically a three-week period from July into August, I was able to take 30 handles out of the queues. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I could have very easily come on the network and said, just because I told you I was going to buy them, oh, I'm going to buy them here. But I think what's important for the viewers to understand is you have to have patience and you have to have discipline and you have to wait for indicators that act as a catalyst to allow you to react. So what did I see today? What does everyone see today? Without question, the fact that oil is going down precipitously to the lowest level since January. In addition to that, natural gas was down 9% yesterday. There was no bounce, no recovery today it's down again close to another 4%. Treasury yields backing off, dollar reversing, now lower. And all of that collectively in combination, Scott, with this overwhelming pessimism that we've kind of rebuilt again, both in terms of sentiment and in terms of positioning. So let's assume that I'm wrong, okay? What am I going to lose? I'm going to lose five of the 30 handles that I collected in a three week period from July to August. I'm more than willing to accept that risk to reward scenario. I'm reacting to what I see in the market. It's a high probability trade. If I'm wrong, which, okay, most likely I will be, I'm going to lose a little bit. And the reason that I'm losing that little bit is because the patience and discipline over the last six weeks didn't allow it to become a bigger loss. Okay.
1: I thought maybe you just bought it cuz you were tired of me asking you about it, beating you up about it like I did yesterday asking you what was up with the trade you said you're going to make and never well, did. And if you did it because of that, I'd say, you know what? That's fine. That's all good. But we heard your reasoning, well, Bryn, do, no. you, do you do you do you, you agree with it? Do you agree with it? Is now a right time to buy the Q? I definitely
3: I I definitely hey, agree Weiss, I with Joe's dropped. patience and, and and timing, right? So So but I I think where with with Joe, what I'm thinking, thinking through is we actually sold the queues when it hit its 200 day. And what we did is took advantage of that rally and went into JEPQ, which really essentially owns the NASDAQ 100, but sells calls against it. Because I agree that technically we are very oversold here. But what I think through, and Joe might be doing this for a trade, I'm doing this as an investment is, Scott, it's been a wonderful 10 years for the NASDAQ. If you go back to 2012, the, the trailing P on the, on the NASDAQ was 15. Right now it's at 25, and rates are probably going to go about 75 to 100 basis points higher. And so that's where I struggle from a, from a trading perspective. Maybe you get a little bit of bounce. I still think that the NASDAQ stocks are going to remain under pressure okay. until we get a better narrative out of inflation and the Fed.
1: Okay. Um, I know you heard Weiss there. Um, we need to explain to him what a live mic means. Nonetheless, we will we will fix that, and then we will we'll hear from. Is we have Weiss now? He obviously can hear us. All right, there he is. I, I see him smiling. Weiss. All right, when you talk, your mic is going out. So I just want to make sure you know that. But <laughs> yeah, you're making you're making my head spin too, just like Joe. I get a text from you just now. I covered my cue short mid morning, and am long for everything Joe said. I'll likely sell end of day. Can you explain exactly what's going on?
4: Sure. You, you know, my, um, my view in the market has not changed at all. As a matter of fact, I'm firm in my view that it's a bear market. However, you know, I, I get up every day to make money, not to dig in on positions. And when you see every indicator that Joe perfectly laid out, you say, okay, let me just take a shot. Let me get rid of the, the Q short position. One of the reasons you invest, were you sure to buy the is because they're extremely liquid Um, so so that's what I did so I I covered them I can't tell you I covered anywhere near the bottom In fact I didn't I'm holding on small small gains but I'm looking primarily at where uh, where the 10-year yield is and then focused on energy but here's the conflict why I don't think they go far if you listen to the speech today from the vice chair of the Fed She said, look, the economy is going to go down. Oil prices are going to go down. And the reason they're going to go down is because we're going to make them go down. So this is a short term relief from what the technicians like to call an oversold condition that you just have to be aware of. And again, I'm not getting dug in. I'm not holding into stocks and saying, hey, in three years now, five years, they'll be higher. The market, you got to respond to what you're given and take opportunities in the bear market to make money, and that's what I'm doing, and that's what Joe's doing. So so why not? But Just put a stop on it so you don't get blown up and you don't get whipsawed.
1: Yep. Liz, but to you, you wouldn't touch tech here at all until the next Fed meeting minimum. Is that right?
5: So, look, I don't like disagreeing with Joe, and I don't like disagreeing with Steve. They are both better traders than I and more experienced at trading a market. I am not able to manage my emotions that well. So yes, I would avoid the cues here. And I would do that because I still think that we have volatility that's going to continue at least until the next Fed meeting, possibly through the month of September. And we may end up flat for the month, but just stomaching some of those moves is not what I'm trying to do right now. I think that tech has been sold and it continues to see pressure just from macro forces, those macro forces are not gone. Maybe they've relaxed a bit, but they're not gone. And tech is going to continue to be the poster child for what feels pain in this environment.
1: Jim, do you agree with that or not, Farmer Jim?
6: I, I do, but I have a longer-term perspective for why I agree with that, which is simply to say I think we're in the middle stages of a transition from growth leadership over the last 10 years to value leadership over the next 10 years. And that's not just mean reversion. It's not just because the chart moves in 10-year periodicity. It's because I think we're still in the early stages of an economic expansion that has to do with reconfiguring the global economy post-pandemic that's going to favor industrials, financials, et cetera. But here's a point. I would would make, and I think it's an important one, is that during this transition, you will get moments where people flood back into the market for whatever reason. And they're most likely to go to that area of the market that has worked the best for them over the last 10 years, that being tech and the triple Qs. That's just an obvious place for people to go as they try to re-enter this market. For the long term, though, I don't think you're going to see outperformance there, mainly because of where multiples are. I know we're going to talk about Apple later, but we could use that as just a multiple example example, it's at about 25 times forward earnings. Now, does it deserve that? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think you're going to get multiple expansion there. So using Apple as a representative of the triple Qs, all you can really hope for is earnings per share growth to drive share price appreciation. That's going to be 8 to 10% in that sector. You're going to get better returns
1: elsewhere. Did you misspeak? You said we're in the early stages of an economic expansion. You, you meant contraction, clearly, right? <laughs>
6: Uh, well, I, I, I can't see you because I'm from the padcaster today. I imagine you've got a broad smile on your face. Big one. Um, I, not, not as broad as mine, Jim. Oh, look.
4: Not as broad as mine. Yeah. Real big.
6: Well, no, listen, listen, keeping it serious now for a second, because obviously there's been a lot of you know, heat about this topic. The news articles are out there, and they continue to come in, new announcements, not just of future capital expenditures, but of current, existing, happening right now, capital expenditures that, frankly, are driving economic growth. You know, the Atlanta Fed has GDP this quarter at 2.6% real GDP. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that labor is holding up. Economic activity is strong,
1: period. They've been among the—I mean, uh, with all due respect to the Atlanta Fed—they've been among the historically worst in terms of. Oh, their, I got to stop you. I got to stop their you. Early Scott, forecast. I'm sorry. But It's a def- fact.
6: I've got to stop I'm sorry. you, and I apologize. I know you don't like. I, I, know, pol- I know you don't I,
1: like when I interject no, no, no. facts into our conversations. But they have not been the best <laughs> over the years of forecasting but uh, what quarter I'm, by quarter GDP. That is just a fact. That's just a fact
6: what I observe I agree with your fact what I observe however is that that statement you just made does not get made when the Atlanta Fed is predicting a contraction in GDP I'm not singling you out Scott I'm singling the world at large out. Whenever the Atlanta Fed is is predicting a contraction, everybody is running around like the hair is on fire, like it's the gospel. I agree with you. It's not the gospel, but it's the only forecasting that we have from the Fed, so, so that's why I refer to so it. So uh,
1: that's fair. So Steve Weiss, I mean, this becomes a growth versus value debate. Jim laid out his reasoning as to why he thinks the next ten years are going to be a renaissance for value, and I, I think you, I think we can appropriately use that word renaissance uh, because that's what it would be after such a period of underperformance relative to growth. Do, Do you believe that that we're on the cusp of that and that the growth stocks that we have loved and relied on for the last many years are going to be the disappointers in the years ahead?
4: No, maybe short term because they're they've got higher beta typically, which means reaction in terms of how they move with the market. Um, but no, I, I just don't. Uh, I think new you know, innovation is always going to win, and growth is going to win over a longer term. But what I find interesting is how the bulls have taken their time horizon from in a year, this will be higher, and going in two-year increments. In three years, this will be higher. In five years, this will be higher. So think about that. Over the last 20 years, the market has been up, the S&P, up on average about 9.7%. Over the last 10 years, it's been up 13.2% on average. And I cite the last 10 years and what it does to the 20-year average because that's the period of free money. So when you think about it, if the market goes down another 20%, which it can on normal times when the market typically is up 7% a year, that's three years of performance you're giving up. So I think that the whole equation is ridiculous to keep saying three years, five years, 10 years. Next, maybe the next show, it'll be in 20 years, we'll do better. Come on, it's ridiculous. The idea of being in the market is to make money. The first idea is not to lose money. So that's what I'm focused on. I'm not looking at relative performance, the best performing group when they're all down. I'm looking at absolute performance and surviving to play another day when it can really make money. That opportunity will be here now. But with the Fed coming out and saying we're going to hit the economy and we're going to hit it hard and there's going to be pain, you're not in the early stages of an economic revival. You're in the late stages. As a matter of fact, you're getting that You're digging that grave, and you're only two feet deep in a six-foot grave. So come on. I mean, let's get off the pitch of, hey, I'm a long-term investor, because it's not going to work
1: for you. Jim, I'll let you respond, and then I want to hear from Bryn.
6: Yeah, uh, listen, so some very valid points uh, to what Steve is saying, and and I don't have time to address all of them, but the one thing that I think is most important is this concept of what the Fed's going to do, and I understand there's a 75 basis point hike being priced in. Whether that is the outcome or not, and whether they raise 100 basis points to year end or 150 basis points to year end, depends critically on what inflation does. For me right now, just going to Steve's short-term outlook, next week's inflation reports are vitally important. I happen to think, based on what I'm seeing from gasoline futures, freight prices, food uh, futures, etc., that we're going to be nicely uh, rewarded for our patience to date and see that inflation comes in below expectations. We'll talk next week, but that's what I'm looking for in the short term.
1: OK, um, and that's completely valid, too, um, and we will see. So, Bryn, let, let's just steer the conversation, if we could, towards this Apple event, which is about 45 minutes away. Not so much for the anticipation of what they actually announce. New iPhones, maybe watch, and and who knows whatever else comes out of that. We don't necessarily care so much right here about the products themselves. We care more about moving forward, what the stock is going to do. And to an even greater extent, I think, at the current moment, is what that stock is going to mean to the overall market. What that performance needs to be for the overall market right now, which is on shaky footing, I think we would all agree. Is that how we should be thinking about it from here?
3: Well, I mean, Apple is what, 13% of the NASDAQ 100 and 7.3 or 7.4 of the S&P. So it's incredibly important as a individual name. I think though that you have to understand, Europe and China are just as important to Apple as the U.S. And China's probably already in a recession and getting worse. And Europe, I mean, all of, if you look at all history in terms of what's happening, Europe's gonna go into a recession as well. And so it's like, that is like 45% of, of, of revenues. And, and I think that they're probably gonna come out with more expensive iPhones. And you already see on the lower end, you know, between PCs and phones on the lower end are not selling through. So I do think that causes pressure. Potential pressure for Apple is what continues to happen in Europe and China, because I don't think we can just sit here and be insular and just pretend we're just a U.S. economy. Apple's an incredibly multinational company, and so I'm more concerned about what happens over there than the state of the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And just one point on that, Scott, the Atlanta Fed um, actually just came out a second ago, and they revised their GDP down to one4 So um, I'm in the late stage cycle, and and the Atlanta Fed's actually done a pretty good job if you look back historically. And so I still think the economy in the U.S. is weakening. Going back to Apple, you know, how do you sell through these $1,400 phones? You know, we'll see with Christmas coming up, but I definitely think it's a potential weakness with Europe and China. So,
1: Joe, I thought it was really interesting yesterday in overtime, to be honest. We do a daily Twitter poll, and we asked people, is Apple going to hit 140 next? or is it going to hit 170 next? Which is going to hit first? 141.
2: I bet they said 140. 141 yeah, easily. Of course.
1: And I was a little surprised because you yep. don't necessarily typically get people voting against Apple if you want to take that vote for what that was.
2: What do you make of that? I, I, I think it's a reflection of the overall pessimism that's in the market right now, first of all. Uh, secondarily, I, I think it, Confirms a lot of what everyone has said today, where you can maintain two views on the market based on time frame. You could have a, a shorter term view, you could act on that, which I'm doing in the queues, and you could have a, a longer term investment uh, view, which you know, the Terra Nova Quality Momentum Index, that's my longer term view. So I think you could maintain both positions. I think if you're looking for today based on historical probabilities to be the catalyst for Apple, you're going to be disappointed. And I say that as someone who, you know, Apple is, is now my largest personal holding. Uh, over the last 10 years, mm-hmm. on the day of a new product launch, Apple has underperformed seven out of those 10 years. I think the catalyst comes in October earnings when we hear from Tim Cook In his guidance, that demand for the pro product is strong. Hopefully on that pro product, you're going to see a price increase because that's where you're going to get the EPS growth, and that's going to be important for this company. But it really is about the pro product. And if he's able to communicate in October in that guidance that demand for the pro product is strong, there's your catalyst.
1: Typically, though, you know, Apple six months after they announce an iPhone has outperformed the S&P. It's a single digit beat, but nonetheless, it's it's a beat by let's call it six percent on average. So you may not get the one day pop, but you get the longer term bounce, as uh, evidenced by this chart here that Bernstein put together. Liz Young, I sent it to you on the simple question of the are we overstating the importance of Apple right now to this market or not?
5: Well, from a weighting perspective, we're never overstating the importance of Apple to the market. It's going to drive the broad market up or down just by simple fact of how big it is. But there's a difference in question about is it a good company? Are we looking at these companies based on what their prospects are from a product perspective? Or are we looking at how they're going to react in the market? And I think a lot of these in that tech group, especially some of the big ones, you're going to get a better opportunity to buy the stock at a lower price within the next 30 to 60 days.
1: Okay. Weiss. I hear you got stopped out of the queues. You're not even a day trader uh, anymore. You're like a five-minute trader. So thank you for the update. And I do want to get you on some other moves before we take a break. Um, you sold Deer and you sold Devon. Um, deer, you previously said, was a long-term trade, long-term investment. I don't know however you want to characterize that. Um, why did it turn anything but that?
4: Well, well, according to your, uh, to your characterization, of me, uh, being, in, being in it for a month and a half is, is exceedingly Well, long that's term. true. You are an incredibly uh,
1: long term. You are a <laughs> buy and hold investor. I misspoke. I apologize. Yes,
4: you did. You did. <laughs> yeah. I, I just like seeing your head swivel. It reminds me, you know, of, of some old movies. Um, look, it, I can't get married to positions with my market view. And Deer, frankly, exceeded my expectations in the performance that it had. And if I think the market's going to go down to the old lows, uh, I'm not saying it'll test it, that means that Deer will go back down to 300. Keep in mind, from 7-1, July 1st to July 22nd, the stock was up more than 20%. So according to the math I just gave you in response to Jim, that's, that's three years of performance. So you sort of got to be foolish, not take it off. So I sold some last week. And as the valuation umbrella for the market declines and what we've seen in the market was multiple expansion over the last month or two months, uh, that's going to go away. So I want to take profits when I can get them. And that's what I did with deer. I took the money off the table. I still think the fundamentals are very, very strong, but it's a question of what the market's willing to pay for strong fundamentals. And my view is that's going to pay less. In terms of, of Devon. I had taken some of that off, as I had said last week or earlier this week, I forget. And with energy pricing coming down and with everybody being so, so positive on that gas pricing. Um, I thought it was just prudent to take money off the table there, too, before I lost it all. I hate round-tripping stocks. Mm It's the second thing I hate most in this business. The first is losing money.
1: All right. Uh, Let's do this. Bryn, I know you have a couple of moves, too. Uh, We're going to save those, uh, and we'll do those before the show ends. But let's take a quick break, because up next, we have a halftime headliner joining us, BMO's Brian Belsky. Why he is sticking with his view of a year-end melt-up. We're back in two minutes. We are back on what is a still pretty good day for stocks. Let's bring in our halftime headliner now. Brian Belsky, chief investment strategist at BMO. It's good to see you again. Labenthal finally has a wingman on the broadcast, so he's happy about that. But what has enabled you to remain as bullish as you have, other than the fact if you've been bullish for so long, it's kind of hard to change your tune now?
7: Well, thanks for uh, noticing that. And as it's always a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. We're we're on vacation, like most of uh, uh, the Western world, uh, the last couple of weeks of August. And toward the end of my vacation, Scott, I was starting to get all of these messages from clients. Uh, kind of, I told you so, Brian. Things are rolling over again. And because we were pretty bullish and per- we're pretty clear that the market bottom of the June-July, Scott, and we talked about it on your program, and we really talked about with respect to the market as a market of stocks and you have to be a longer term investor and earnings are holding in there but there's there were kept to be there kept on being a lot of consistent themes that we're hearing from clients and i couldn't help myself i was i was emailing clients on vacation i decided to write this report the last couple days of my vacation because of the four main points uh, heading into the last four months of the year number one being august doesn't matter august has never mattered traditionally in the stock market the correlation of august monthly performance relative to year performance is spurious number one number two it's all about september and october and i think this september and october holds even more merit scott not just because we're going to get a further clarity from cpi ppi numbers and other inflation numbers but also the fed but this september and really into october and earnings side but september is key i think because it's really the first official real normalized conference season that we've seen since 2019, as you know, in the fall, people kind of come back to work in the conference season. Traditionally, it's been very important to go out and visit companies and be at these conferences and interact with clients and things like that. And I think it's going to be really important this year, especially now, obviously, October comes third quarter earnings, which has been a a sticking point with myself and, and you, but we can talk about that in a bit. Second point is stop wallowing in the negativity. We know that inflation's here. We know that it's sticky. But it's beginning, we're starting to see signs that it's beginning to roll over. And I'm not calling for this big pivot by the Fed. The Fed, the, the Fed I'm sorry, does need to be aggressive when we know that. Point number three is I just believe investors have been way too academic and trying to apply rules uh, to investing. Just because the market drawed down 20 to 25% doesn't mean earnings are. And what I find fascinating, and we wrote about it on the report, is we've got 16 months now, Scott, a pretty lofty inflation, and earnings have held in there. And we threw out that number that earnings growth rates for 2022 are actually at 500 basis points year-to-date. And the trailing um, bottoms-up number is at about 227. And it has not fallen dramatically, and it's not following the script. But more importantly, I think, is employment. Right. You need to see, I think, probably a double in unemployment to really sign that we're having a recession. And from our lens, we don't make the recession call at BMO, the economists do I'm not seeing any kind of recession signs. And then okay. the last point,
1: okay. Brian. I mean, Brian, I, what you're, do do? you're obviously well-rested from your vacation because that was a very <laughs> long. That, that's why I had to jump in. So forgive me for jumping in, but right, I'm going to – there was a lot there that I need to, to pick over, okay? <laughs> Stop wallowing in the negativity. That's not an investment strategy. I mean, if people are negative – they're negative for a reason. Number two, if you talk about investment rules, maybe one of the most powerful rules we've learned over the last 13 or so years is don't fight the Fed. That's why people are having a hard time being bullish if they know that the Fed is going to continue to raise rates, not to mention that QT doubles this month. Right. So that that's all out in front of us. UBS is taking down their uh, S&P price target. They're cutting uh, further their EPS estimates. Morgan Stanley talks about margin pressures ahead. Isn't it inevitable that earnings are going to come down? It's just to the degree to which they do. Not that they're going to come down. I know even you probably think they're two, $250 is impossible. That's just not happening. Let's be honest with one another and, and, and our viewers. It's how much they come down and what multiple you put or you're willing to put on, on that. Isn't that the argument, Brian, regardless of all the other stuff that, that you laid out in your four or five points?
7: Yeah, it all comes back to earnings, Scott. Stocks lead earnings, which lead the economy. Stock market was down 23% um, in the correction. I don't think you can you can apply that same math to earnings because of what I said with respect to how stable and sustainable earnings have been through this 16 months of increasing inflation. Yes. Uh, are we going to make our 245 number? Probably not, but I think we're going to be closer than most people think because of this secular, not structural, secular trend, really since the tech wreck of companies underpromising and overdelivering, delivering. Um, and we've seen that only accelerate during this time frame with respect to don't fight the Fed. The market's already done their job. The stocks have already done its job. I think it's already priced in what the Fed is going to be doing going forward in terms of stock prices. Remember stocks are leading indicators. So the stock market was way ahead of the Fed with respect to in the in the in the bond market in terms of its weakness. And So I think the stock markets already done its job. That's why we've been very clear that we are going to see a melt up because all the institutional investors that that I see around the world and we're doing a we're doing a Europe trip next week and they're all very bearish obviously. Um, they're all worried about what's coming next on the downside and from my lens and based on my communications, no one, no one is positioned for any kind of upside surprise or any kind of positive news.
1: Jim Leventhal, you want in? Um,
6: I do. Brian, always good to see you. Uh, Scott raises a number of questions. By the way, welcome to the Scott Wapner experience. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, this uh, this idea that he raises, though, I mean, all kidding aside, he raises good points, right? We've got to dance with the bare argument, part of which is quantitative tightening. I'm of the opinion, and I'd like yours, that quantitative tightening is more than offset by the decline in Treasury issuance as the budget deficit has declined $1.7 trillion. Let me say that again, $1.7 trillion, over the last year. Am I um, am I out of my mind?
7: No, you're on to something, too. And remember, the, as the economy grows, the tax receipts grow, and corporate America is doing very good. And obviously, people, especially in 2021, earned uh, earned a lot of money, especially on uh, the white-collar jobs. Now, some, that's going to go down in 2022. But be that as it may, tax receipts are up when we know that. That's a very, very key point. But with respect to QT and with respect to what the Fed's doing, this is year number one that's really gonna jumpstart this whole transition to normalcy. It's very clear we're going back to work, three days minimum, maybe four to five. I think by 24, 20, and I'm sorry, 23 and 24, we're gonna be normalized again. We're the majority of times that we're gonna be back into work, that's really meaningful in terms of economies and how we're spending money in cities and office space. And I think that's a key, key thing. So part of our call was, is I'm sorry, that. Interest rates are going to normalize uh, between this three to four percent range. Um, the Fed's going to normalize its balance sheet. Earnings growth is going to be uh, mid to single, uh, kind of mid single digits. Performance in the market back to its traditional kind of eight to ten percent, and then we'll see where we go from there in terms of what's going to happen right. in terms of the
1: economy. Somebody's very heavily sighing. I don't. It must be Weiss. It, 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 I have a feeling it's about the points that that Belsky and and Farmer Jim continue to make. Is that you, Weiss, or is that Joe? I can't can't tell.
4: I'm not going to admit to anything, Scott, but here's the first question I'd like to ask, Brian. We've got to be real quick. (laughs) I'd like to know if he spent his vacation at DJ school because he's spinning an awful lot of information just to his benefit and ignoring sort of the facts. The facts are that earnings season were hallmarked by energy earnings being up 290%. That drove it all. If you go sector by sector, then you have materials that were up about 13%. But I've got consumer discretionary down 18%. I got financials down over 20%, 25%. I've got communication services down 11%. Where do you see the strength? And tell me at what point in time, what point in history, have you ever seen a Fed cut their balance sheet in half By $4.5 trillion, take that liquidity out of the market and see it going up. Your answer should be never, because it's never happened. So it's useless to base what the market's going to do on a store, on history. I'm happy to wallow in reality, not negativity.
7: Quick, Belsky, please. Steve, there's nothing I've done in my entire 33-year career that benefited me. I only speak in the facts, and I only speak in analysis, so I do not, do not take lightly what you said that I only see things that benefit me because because I do state the facts and because energy to up 200 percent is a very small percentage of contribution to earnings growth you know that this is about earning stability and sustainability and that's why the U.S. market in terms of both of those ratings and analysis points sustainability and stability of earnings that's why we have the best market in the world and those are the facts do the analysis.
1: All right, we're going to make that the last word. The, the analysis th- is that earnings are down to 3%. Brian energy. Belsky, I appreciate you coming on. Very much well rested Thank too you. after a great vacation where he did work, God forbid. All right, we'll talk to him soon. Let's get the headlines with Christina Partsonevolas. Hi Christina.
8: Hi Scott. Here's our CNBC news update at this very hour. Mass will no longer be required to ride on New York trains and buses. The governor says the 28-month 28-month-old mass mandate ends today, although enforcement has been pretty sparse for quite some time, and I can vouch for that. Russian President Vladimir Putin is slamming Western sanctions yet again. He said price caps for Russian oil and gas are, quote, stupid, and Russia will have enough customers in Asia. He also threatened to halt all energy sales to the West if the price caps are implemented. And NASA releasing a new photo from the James Webb Space Telescope. The mosaic image shows the Tarantula Nebula, which stretches 340 light-years across. For the first time, scientists are now able to see thousands of young stars within the gigantic cloud of dust and
5: gas. Halftime is back in just two minutes. What does it mean to be rich?
9: And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani, investing according to environmental, social, and governance principles. This is ESG. It's getting very controversial. Florida and Texas are taking aim against it. The Texas Comptroller accused 10 financial companies, including BlackRock, which has a substantial suite of ESG products, of boycotting energy companies. The move could force certain Texas government funds to sell any shares in these companies. Florida this month banned its $186 billion dollar pension fund from investing according to ESG factors joining me to discuss this is Arnie Nowak he's the head of systemic investment solutions for the Americas for DWS group Arnie uh, you BlackRock is not boycotting oil are, are they I mean you run several large ESG funds right now BlackRock says we're not boycotting oil most of your funds have some oil exposure how do you respond to texts in Florida and what do you say are you boycotting oil funds
6: So, for the record, ESG does not mean we boycott energy companies. S&P, which is our flagship S&P 500 ESG ETF, still has over 4% in energy exposure because it's industry group neutral. So no, we do not boycott energy
9: companies. I'm I'm looking at one of your ESG funds. This is one of your big ones, U.S.S.G., it says here. It screens out alcohol, tobacco, gambling, weapons. But you have positions in oil stocks. You own Schlumberger. I see you own Marathon Oil. It isn't the point of ESG to say profits matter, but it isn't the only thing that matters, and that you state what your what your principles are here very clearly. Correct. That's exactly as you say. We're still investors. You know, our investors are still investors. We still
6: make comp- make money for our investors, but money is not the only thing that matters. So we implement implement and employ certain ESG screens that have proven to be effective.
9: Yeah. Okay. We're gonna have a lot more on this whole ESG. Pushback on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Arnie's going to be joined by Mona Nockby. She's the global head of ESG capital market strategy, SP Global Sustainable One. Todd Rosenbluth is the head of research at Vetify. We're going to discuss the ETF's industry's response to this recent broadside against
1: ESG. etfedge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Bob Bizzani. Now I have to go to Steve Leisman in D.C. has some breaking headlines regarding the Fed. Uh, Lyle Brainerd, vice chair of the Fed, making some comments. Steve, what do we have?
10: Yeah, Scott, in line with uh, some of the hawkish commentary that's been out already this morning, Brainerd saying that policy should be restricted for some time. Uh, Here's a quote from her speech that she is giving at this moment. Quote, we are in this for as long as it takes to get inflation down. So uh, no looking over her shoulder there for Lael Brainard, the vice chair of the Fed. She says it's going to take several months to be confident that inflation is indeed moving back down towards the Fed's 2% target. Important, though, to avoid the risk of pulling back too soon. And the Fed must defend what she calls the inflation expectations anchor. One perhaps dovish comment that I wouldn't go too far where she said there is some concern about the risks of over tightening, but that does not appear to be an immediate concern. Disinflation will be helped in the U.S. by weakened demand, uh, both here in the United States and tightening in many other countries, as well as what's been happening in Europe overall. Interesting comment here that, according to Brainer, there is scope for profit margins in certain industries where profit margins are especially high for them to fall, and that could help. Reduce inflation. Finally, she's saying labor demand is exhibiting continued strength at odds, Scott, with some of the uh, weakening economic uh, numbers that we've
1: had. You can't um, you likely can't see the movement in the stock market as you were talking, Steve. Uh, But it was moving higher. And even as you said, you know, take it maybe with a grain of salt. My words, not yours on this. Some concern of over tightening. Steve, there is in corners of this market a don't believe the Fed rather than don't fight the Fed mentality, simply that people just don't believe that they're going to be able to tighten uh, as much as they act like they will. Uh, They don't believe the hype. Um, Those people can send me a check, Scott. (laughs) All right, let me let Jim Labenthal make it out. Steve, Steve or Steven, what do you prefer on the check? Uh, uh, Steve is good. Steve is fine. Quicker, <laughs> less All All right. time. All right. Good stuff, Steve. Thank you. Uh, sure. but Bryn, let, let me go to you on that, um, because I mean it seriously, right? You, you do see the market tick higher. Leisman reads line after line after line of, of hawkish uh, wording from Brainerd. And that one line, is that what we're, we're hanging on? There are those who do believe that they don't believe the Fed and what it says.
3: I think you're so spot on. I mean, I've been saying all year, as long as a lot of people don't fight the Fed, but I think you're so spot on because I question also, do I believe the Fed is actually gonna do what they say they're doing? Because remember, the Fed has three tools, right? They can raise or lower rates, quantitative easing, and quantitative tightening, and their words. And I think the market, people that are that are saying don't believe the Fed are saying they're just using those words to job on the market because the markets were running up and they want financial conditions to stay tighter. So I definitely think that's something that people have to take into question. But we'll see. Right. Because she said very clearly, we've got to wait a few months to see. So that would mean that they're actually going to not change their pain trade until like November or December. And I think that's really still of question.
1: Yeah. I mean, clearly, it's it's, I think it's okay. The market's okay with the, the Fed you know, doing what they're going to do raise rates. I mean, they're going to raise this month and they're going to raise in November or October, November, December uh, or or whatever. Uh, I think the market's fine with that. It's come to grips with that. It's just not going overboard is maybe helping stocks. Liz, is that sort of the mentality of why some just don't believe what the Fed says, regardless of how spooky it sounds?
5: I think the main reason people don't believe what the Fed says is because the Fed is not very good at projecting what's going to happen a year out. I think their words are probably pretty good at projecting what they're going to do at the next meeting and maybe the following meeting, but that's about it. Because if the data changes, we all know they're going to change their tune. The other thing I would say is that fighting inflation is what they need to do. So as long as they keep sending that message, there's a chance that we avert recession. Because if we didn't fight inflation, if we let inflation go on its own, we would for sure be in a recession. We wouldn't be here debating whether or not it was going to happen. So they do have to do that in order to give us any chance of averting it. It's just a matter of if they can do it without breaking the rest of the economy.
1: Jim, I mean, you're sort of been been hanging on this idea THAT, YOU KNOW, THEY'RE GOING TO GO 100 MORE BASIS POINTS, RIGHT, 50, 25, 25, AND THEN THEY'RE GOING TO STOP OR THEY'RE GOING TO WAIT AND SEE AND THEY'RE NOT GOING TO uh, EITHER BE ABLE TO RAISE AS MANY TIMES AS THEY SAY OR THE ECONOMY IS GOING TO HAVE ENOUGH OF A CUSHION THAT EVEN IF THEY CONTINUE TO RAISE, WE COME FROM SUCH A STRONG BASE IT'S NOT GOING TO MATTER MATERIALLY IN THE BIG PICTURE.
6: OR SIMPLY PUT, THEY'RE JUST NOT GOING TO HAVE TO. And and for that, again, next week's inflation reports are critical, but uh, you know I keep looking at gasoline futures. I know it's only one uh, part of the CPI equation, but they're off almost 50% from the June high. Prices at the pump are only off 25%. I, I feel comfortable with this prediction about the future. In October, you're gonna see national prices at the pump below $3. And why does that matter? It's because it's a very frequent price point for consumers. As it continues to go down, consumer sentiment goes up. You're, this is the soft landing. You've got good jobs. If consumer sentiment picks up, as I expect, and inflation is coming down, what's the Fed got to do? Yeah. It's, they just don't have to is the point.
1: I hear you. Um, we doing this now. Oh, Mike Santoli is going to join us next with his midday word. We'll be right back. All right, Welcome back to halftime. Stocks hitting session highs on the back of Lyle Brainerd's comments, perhaps moving the market a little bit higher. Oil is down 5 percent. It's around session lows this hour. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. I just learned, too, that um, Mark Fisher is going to join us in just a minute, too. So let's dance a little bit uh, ahead of that, Mike, with, with what's going on in the market. Um, do you think oil is helping uh, oil down today? The magnitude in which it is is helping stocks?
8: I think it's certainly helping in terms of this idea that the real economy can hold up relatively well for whatever the Fed has to do, whatever it thinks it has left to do, uh, and that in fact, uh, you know, the inflation expectation story it feeds into that positive narrative. Now, I do think there's a risk that the decline in crude oil becomes a little bit disorderly and and also stokes this talk out there, which you're already hearing, which is when the dollar is racing higher like this, when you know global yields are doing what they're doing, the risk of a fin- Financial accident of some sort goes up. I like the fact that people are on alert for that at a time when real financial stress is not particularly worrisome uh, at this point, anyway. Uh, but I do think that both those things could be true at the same time. It's good for the real economy, uh, but not necessarily the pace at which it's going down could mean that people are trapped.
1: What do you, what do you make of these Brainerd not just the comments, but the, the market is just hanging on any, any notion whatsoever that the Fed's not going to be able to do? what it thinks it might want to do.
8: Well, nothing that is in Brainerd's speech is inconsistent with the idea that it goes three quarters of a point in September and then another three quarters of a percent by the end of this year. And then you're in a more balanced spot where you wait and see and things can take a pause and, and you assess the data. So I don't think that the, the market, by reacting the way it is in merely just responding to some oversold conditions and bouncing one percent on a day, is somehow assuming that there's some massive dovish pivot coming along. It's pretty much in tune with, well, we're roughly in sight of, uh, of, of the restrictive policy the Fed wants to get to, uh, and then we'll we'll have a more of a two-sided debate about monetary policy. So I don't think it's necessarily that uh, investors are reading into this something that isn't there. Uh, what's there, and Brainerd had a more balanced take on things, right, saying that obviously there's a risk of overtighting. I also like this idea that profit margins are some kind of an area of the economy that can flex lower, that also can help on the inflation side, implicitly saying that maybe some companies have been over-earning in this an inflationary environment, it's everything except saying we want to put people out of work to get the inflation lower, uh, which which I think you know has it, been something the Fed's been trying to do for a long time. Talking about getting rid of job openings, getting rid of uh, excess profit margins. Mm.
1: I'll see you in a bit. I'll see you over time. Okay. Uh, that's Mike Santoli. We'll see him for his last word. As I said, uh, Mark Fisher, uh, MBF Trading is uh, is on our, our phone line right now. We uh, had asked him to call in to talk about what's taking place in the, the patch uh, today. So what what are we to make of this move, Fish? Um, what's the best way to look at it as an investor, which is now the lowest in eight months
11: for crude oil today? Well, first of all, I, I don't really know what to make of the move, but I will tell you that last week the tip-off was when OPEC cut production anomaly and the market didn't respond positively, Was in another case of just good news, bad action. Now, obviously, that could be the wild cause of Something going on in Russia, Ukraine, that I have no idea about. Something with Iran and the United States, maybe they, are good, maybe they are going to make a deal. I mean, but to me, in anticipation of the winter, as a trader, you couldn't ask for a better setup. Because now, the risk-reward of entering into the energy patch has just gotten 10 times better, right? Instead of, having to buy, instead of buying nat gas at $9, you're going to be able to buy nat gas at you know, sub-8, maybe mil-7s, or maybe even lower crude oil instead of having to pay 90, 95, 100, you're going to be able to, you know, the, the risk reward lines up much better in anticipation of the winter, which is not going away. So I don't really think today's the day because you've got a lot of moving averages that are broken. You've got about technical selling. You've got all the dumb dumb money being sold. But I think that probably Tuesday, Wednesday next week, depending how things line up, again, I think people are going to reassess what's going on here and say, You know, was it a warm winter? Winter didn't even happen yet. You know, who knows what's going to happen here in the States? Who knows what the demand is going to be? So I think this is a next week's going to present a a pretty good buying opportunity. What's what's driving
1: it the most, do you think? And maybe it's a confluence of the the dollar, the weakening global outlook, one more than the other, or are they both playing uh, roles in their own way?
11: I think that what it is, is really the market's pretty illiquid. I think that as OPEC... Minister said, you know, things are happening for no reason. And I think that what's happening is no one wants to move, get in, get in the way of a freight train, right? Things start going down, no one wants to buy it. Things start going up, no one wants to sell it. But I do think that what's going to happen is, you know, you see what's going on in Europe with all these variation payment um, um, situations where, you know, you know, everyone's asking for variation relief and that, that uh, you know, different countries could backstop in case there's a, a, bad, um, a bad winter and prices go up. So if the market goes up this winter and producers that would normally sell production just to lock in, you know, inventory, then, you know, usually banks go ahead and finance that, that, that production sales, you know, that, that, that hedge. I don't think they're going to do it that much this winter. So, again, I hope the thing keeps going down for the next couple of days. Because, to me, it's all about risk-reward, right? You know, who cares, you know, what something is. It depends. Is, you know, you can risk X to make four X. You know, that's the setup you're looking for. I was worried that you'd have to buy crude oil and everything else, you know, above 100, and the risk of order wouldn't be as good. Now, with, with the marketplace getting short, with all these technical indicators, you know, falling by the wayside, but it's just sell, sell, sell. Yeah. Middle of next week is when, you know, I think that it's time to step in. Not okay. Now. We,
1: um, I'll, I'm going to be back in touch with you uh, mid-next week. We'll see where we're at. And uh, and what happens between now and then. I so much appreciate you calling in. I got to go because I'm towards the end of my program go, 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 go. Uh, right now. We're at 56 uh, past the hour. Uh, but that's great insight from Mark Fisher. there. Uh, buying opportunity. He suggests maybe today's not the day yet. We'll be right back with final trades. Oh, we do final trades right here. My, my bad. Bryn, what, what do you have?
3: AdV, It's come down from about 175. It's at 134. It's got a 4% yield. I'm um, actually added to my position.
1: Ah, okay. Good stuff. Liz Young, you have a final trade?
5: Financials. If we avoid recession, a lot of room to bounce. If we go into one, it's not a financial crisis and valuations are attractive.
1: Joe? Tesla. Mm, okay. Farmer Jim.
6: Alaska Airlines, with where jet fuel prices have gone, it could be Alaska or whatever your favorite airline is.
1: Okay. Steve Weiss?
4: Short the TLT. I think yields go higher. Okay.
1: We uh, continue to watch this market. Interesting comments from Lyle Brainerd. That does it for us. I'll see you in overtime. The exchange begins right after this. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern only on CNBC.
0: You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower. The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.